0: This podcast was recorded before COVID-19 and protests around the death of all Black lives. Just as a reminder, here at It's Personal Podcast, we try to amplify the voices so often hidden in our world. Listen, take notes, and learn. Be nice, be kind, and respect one another. Peace. Hey, what's up, y'all? My name is Gary, and welcome to the second season of It's Personal. Okay, good. This is gonna be really dope. But I don't want any. <laughs> putting yourself out there as a practitioner, you're growing and learning. Not at all. Minutes. My name
1: is Kwame Embalia. Uh, I'm an author. Hi, I'm Padma Venkatraman, the author of the book. Sure. Yeah, my name's Natasha um, Diaz. Co-switching and all those
0: things. I mean, all, all oh, that. I
1: all think. the time. I mean, he's still on the road all the time. But you know, like as a new mom, the as
0: relationships else, that minded. I have cultivated uh, from there. Uh, I'm so excited you. to talk to you. <laughs> this is all amazing. Right. This is so fun. Record. All set. Yep. Okay. Uh, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of It's Personal. And today, as I always say, I have a special guest with me. I'm super excited because there are multiple connections that we can make. Um, I think the connection I want to make first is before he introduces himself is that um, I'm currently teaching in a place where was uh, born, which is, I think, really, really interesting. Um, are you able to introduce yourself today?
1: Yeah. Hi. Thanks for asking me to, uh, to be on the podcast. Uh, my name is randy ribeye and a teacher activist author uh, most recently author of patron saints of nothing and i was born in the philippines grew up in the u.s midwest lived in the east coast for a while and now i'm in the west
0: coast of Mm -hmm. the united states Mm -hmm. randy thank you for having me um Uh, My wife is such a huge fan of your writing um, and just who you are as a person. She's um, used your work in her classroom. She teaches middle school, so... um,
1: She sounds like a great person.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Your work is a little bit more accessible to her kids. Um, I teach elementary, so it's a little bit tougher, but um, she is a huge advocate for who you are, what you're about, um, how you carry yourself, what you do with your writing. What do you remember from the, the Philippines and Manila in general just growing up?
1: Not a whole lot. Because I was really, really young when I moved over to the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like a little after one year old.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but it is kind of interesting because, you know, I, I kind of talked about it in the book a little bit, even though the character is fictional, kind of, I share a lot of the kind of, yeah, superficial biographical details with him. Mm-hmm. Um, like when I go back, it does kind of feel more like home to me. Um, and... Even like language-wise, this is gonna be this is like a really weird thing, and a lot of people don't believe me. But like English never feels natural to me. Um, you know, it wasn't the first language that I heard or that I spoke when I started to make sounds, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the first language would have been uh, Bicol or also Tagalog, mm-hmm. and both are spoken in that region. And uh, and like when I, even though I don't speak it fluently, I've been trying to relearn it. Um, And it Mm -hmm. feels a lot more natural, natural in my mouth than English Mm -hmm. does. Um, Yeah. and So it's, it's, it's kind of more of like a sense, I guess, or a feeling than it is Mm -hmm. like specific memories Mm -hmm. because of how young Mm -hmm. I
0: was. That's cool. And I think one of my other questions that I guess, and I I think I know the answer, but I'll ask anyway, um, how much, um, how connected do you still feel to the Philippines in regards to like your work, um, what you're about, what you put in your writing? Um, and what you just share in general,
1: yeah, I still feel very connected, uh, but at the same time, like I haven't always felt that way. I think, um, you know, growing up in the United States, uh, you know, my parents—well, my mom is white, my dad is Filipino, um, and he was very much part of the generation of like assimilation, right? Of mm. uh, you're, you know, we're in America now, so we speak English. <laughs> Mm-hmm. uh you know we don't they didn't teach us tagalog because they didn't want us to have an accent um you know so it was very much like that but then at the same time we did you know eat mostly filipino food when i was growing up we still like i played in like a filipino basketball league in detroit mm-hmm. um you know we would go to random parties like filipino people who lived like in the detroit area um like i had no idea who they were but it's like oh they're filipino and so we would go uh-huh. uh-huh. we like spend the day at their house um, and so there were like these connections that were kind of threaded through my life, kind of even at the same time that I was kind of being pressured to, I guess, you know, be very quote unquote American. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't really until later
0: personal, 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 personal. personal. Personal personal. Personal, 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 personal,
1: You know, that I, I kind of understood the damage of that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I grew up kind of constantly being asked the question of what are you? You know, what are you over and over and over again? Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly not ill-intentioned. Usually it comes from a place of curiosity, Just people being curious about my ethnicity. Mm-hmm. But when you hear that over and over again, you know, it kind of gives you the impression that you don't belong there, right? That you're not mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: you're
1: not mm-hmm. somebody who they look at and they just assume belongs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so that created, really, I think, that was like a lot of shame when I was growing up and kind of like a lot of, you know, looking at like the white actors that were famous at the time and all that and kind of being mm-hmm. like, oh, why can't I, you know, why can't I have like blue eyes you know why can't i like have Mm -hmm. hair like theirs or whatever Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and so you know as i got older and kind of started to started to 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 understand or be able to contextualize that um it kind of led me to wanting to kind of re-explore that connection to the Philippines and kind of Mm re-educate myself on a lot of the stuff that had been lost Mm -hmm. um, over time. Sorry, I don't know if that was your original
0: question. No, that was perfect. That was perfect. That was perfect. I went to the side and just kept going That was was honestly a perfect answer. And I kind of knew, I kind of know just based on like your writing and um, the stuff that I've just seen from you um, in general. Um, Can you talk to a little bit about like what are those pressures saying in elementary, in middle school and high school, or even now, and you touched on them a little bit, like that caused you to think that way, that caused you to think like blue eyes are better, um, like like a certain look is better, etc. Like what, are, what were some of those pressures that you kind of faced?
1: In addition to, uh, you know, being asked the question of what are you over and over and over again, mm-hmm. I think a big part of it was just like representation, right? Or lack of representation. Mm-hmm. Um, it was... You know, Filipinos, Filipino Americans are the third largest immigrant group in the United States, Mm -hmm. Um, but you probably would not expect that, or that's kind of surprising to a lot of people, even to other Filipino Americans, because we just don't see uh, ourselves represented that much in politics or Mm -hmm. in media, Mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, like a lot of other American kids, like I consume media like crazy, right? Like I play video games, I read books, I watch TV. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, especially when I was coming up, which was like the 90s, you know, it it was all like white kids.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, the books I read
1: were like white boys (laughs) solving mysteries, right? (laughs) Um, All the movies that I watched were like white guys going on adventures. And so I think just a lot of it is coming from that place of just like, you didn't, you know, I didn't see myself. I didn't see anyone like me. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, being somebody who is biracial and kind of bi-national, like there's this extra layer of complexity, right. In terms Mm -hmm. of if I were watching something and I saw somebody who was like Filipino, that wouldn't necessarily be like my, my story either. Right. Of course, Mm -hmm. That'd be like half of it. And so it was very much this, this, place where I think like I grew up kind of feeling ashamed of that side of myself a little bit and like not really trying to let it show too much and then when I went to college uh I kind of came to this realization mostly through like black professors who were having me read black literature Mm -hmm. and I really connected with like a lot of it even though it wasn't the same experience you know it was kind Mm -hmm. of giving voice to a lot of the feelings that I had like Du Bois's Mm -hmm. double consciousness and stuff Mm -hmm. um and so then a lot of those professors prompted me to kind of read more in Filipino literature, Filipino-American literature. Mm-hmm. And that kind of sent me down that way. Uh, but then it kind of, you know, like a pendulum, I kind of swung <laughs> the other way, right? Because then I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm Filipino, I'm Filipino. And then mm-hmm. you kind of like get more into it. It's like, uh, I'm not like, <laughs> I'm not like Philippines Filipino, right? Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel connected to that, but that's also like not who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. I am both of these things, American, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Some like an American of a colonized uh, ethnicity or colonized history Mm -hmm. living in America, Um, and so then it was kind of this this you know coming to terms with what it means to be both at the same time Mm -hmm. Uh, because I don't know you know American culture is very binary you're either this or you're that
0: yeah not very not a lot of room
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) and so it's like not only did I not see Filipinos represented in media. Um, I also didn't see, you know, people who were kind of split between worlds. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I think that that can be damaging too, right? Because you can kind of, you kind of, when you don't see one side of yourself, you're like, oh, maybe the other side is kind of what I'm more connected to. Mm -hmm. And then if you don't feel enough of that other side either, then it's kind of like, what am I? It's kind of Mm -hmm. caught between two worlds. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I think it's a lot of it's coming to terms with what, what does it mean to be both of these
0: things? rather than it's, yeah it's, it's a different
1: viewpoint I, too than of like half of one and half of the other right
0: mm-hmm. and so i think it goes back to that identity piece where you are just constantly having that discussion with yourself and like who you are and the places that you're from and what you represent et etc cetera, etc cetera. um you teach high school correct yes yep okay um how does what is how does that what does that look like for you in the classroom um in regards to helping kids identify who they are um based on everything?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this is probably a longer, longer, deeper question <laughs> oh, than we course. have time for. But uh, you know, I'll touch on a few things briefly that I try to do. Um one is one is like just straight up trying to decolonize the curriculum, right? Mm-hmm. Um You know, most people who are kind of aware, anybody who would probably be listening to your podcast, I'm guessing, is like already aware of this. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That our literature canon, you know, the books that we usually have kids read in English classes in America, uh, are like the dead white guys with maybe like a couple dead white females as well. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And so part of it's just like breaking that down and kind of changing that up so that it looks it's more reflective of the reality of, you know, what our country actually looks like now and what it has looked like in the past. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in in being like making that conversation very explicit with the kids too, um, you know, getting them to be critical of only a single perspective and seeing, helping them find the value in different perspectives. Um, Mm -hmm. In different histories, because, you know, I don't know. Like, okay, you'll read Catcher in the Rye, right? And people be like, ah, this is like one of the greatest books. And there's this belief that the canon reflects objective quality, Mm -hmm. right? But then, like, how many kids actually read James Baldwin? Mm -hmm. In my opinion, like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) objectively, massively better than Mm -hmm. J.D. Salinger. Uh, But, like, hardly anyone reads them in American high schools. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, so part of it's just like breaking down that canon. Uh, I think part of it is also, uh, you know, I have the conversation with my kids about like books as windows and mirrors, like Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop's, Bishop mm-hmm. talks about. And, uh, you know, she had like a, an article in the early 90s about it. Um, just that idea that books can be, you know, windows kind of can show you other experiences and also like mirrors kind of reflect your own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do have my kids read that. I do have that actually like part of our curriculum is they do like independent reading, right, where they like read on their own outside of what we read together as class. Mm-hmm. And so part of how I structure that is, like, using that framework. Uh, so sometimes, you know, there'll be one one assignment where they have to read a mirror book, right? Mm-hmm. And then one where they have to read a Windows book, and then one where mm-hmm. they have to read, like, their choice of a mirror mm-hmm. or window book. And that kind of really prompts them to think about, you know, who they are, because what is going to be a mirror book to Agreed.
0: me? <laughs> Agreed, yeah. You know? And then it gives them that critical lens on so many different voices as well, right? I think that's so important even as a third grade teacher I think. Mm-hmm. And kids oh, yeah. should be doing that work so early so early on in life just so they have those different perspectives as much as possible. Um Randy, one of the things I'm really curious about is just like the work that you do in regards to like um being an activist and um how you also implement that within your literature as well. And I know you've talked about this like so many times <laughs> already. Um but I'm I'm curious of like how did that come about like is it something that um kind of runs in your family has it been motivated by something that like an experience um yeah how did that happen for you
1: well thank you for asking this i actually don't get asked it that often
0: yes
1: uh, <laughs> so i'm happy to talk about it um so it definitely does not come from my family <laughs> my family you know, personal personal the vast majority of my family is conservative uh, or apolitical, a as much as you can be apolitical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, for me, it, 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 I came pretty late to like actual activism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of the ideas of activism, I've kind of been in pretty into since college, mm-hmm. um, you know, reading a lot of stuff, right? You know, learning about a lot of activism, but in terms of like doing stuff myself out in terms of like political engagement, that is pretty recent. And I actually like, came out of writing Patron Saints of Nothing um, because, you know, the main question that I went into Patron Saints of Nothing with was the idea of as a Filipino American, what right do I have to talk about what's happening in the Philippines in terms of their politics, right? Uh, and through writing the book, I kind of found, you know, the answer that I arrived at for myself at the end was like, yes, I do have that right. But one, I need to be educated on <laughs> what's going mm-hmm. on. Right. Mm-hmm. I need to understand. I need to get know the facts. I need to know the different perspectives. And then two, that there are a lot of people out there already doing the work. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I was learning more about those kind of organizations. Um, and kind of what they're doing kind of on, on the you know on the front lines um, and you know as i was as i was learning more of that it, it kind of made me realize the extent to which like i needed to be more involved right like yeah i could write this book and you know raise awareness globally with the book but like awareness doesn't fix anything right <laughs> mm-hmm. like awareness is the first step mm-hmm. and you know, if we're unhappy with something like, say, the, the drug war in the Philippines, which has taken probably a, at least 30,000 lives, according to a lot of human rights groups' estimates, um, you know, if if we are just aware of it, uh, if we are just feeling empathy for the victims, like nothing changes. <laughs> like mm-hmm. people actually mm-hmm. need to do stuff, right? Like you mm-hmm. actually need to put in the work. You actually need to pressure your politicians. Uh, You also, you know, you need to uh, organize, you need to mobilize, because like the more voices there are, the more power that movement's going to have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that has kind of recently come to me kind of in the last two years, kind of as the book prepared to go out and I got more involved in some of these organizations Mm -hmm. and started working with them more. Um, And a lot of it too, you know, a lot of times people get, people view what's happening in the Philippines as like this distant, you know, faraway nation. And you know, a lot of times my white readers will kind of just oh, I cried when I read your book or whatever. And it's mm-hmm. like okay, like oh, well, what are you, what are you gonna do though? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. And sometimes people think like there's not a connection between our country and the Philippines, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, there's the colonial history between the two countries, uh, but also nowadays, like we, our government has given I think over. Thirty-three million dollars to the drug war, right? To the Philippine police's efforts to enforce the drug war, um, our government has given over five hundred million dollars to the Philippine defense. So that money goes to the police and to the military, right? Who are enforcing things like the drug war as well as a whole range of other human rights abuses. Yeah. Um, so our tax dollars are funding what's Those happening organizations. over there, yeah. And then. On top of that, you know, a lot of the weapons the police and the military use, guess where they're made? (laughs) Right here in the USA, right? And Mm -hmm. guess who sold it to them?
0: Yeah,
1: Our -hmm. government sold it to them. Um, And so there's like all these connections. And I think like it's important for Americans to be aware of those connections because once you're aware of them, you know, then you need to accept that there's some responsibility here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there are things we can do in terms of pressuring our elected officials to, you know, to stop selling arms to the Philippine government, to mm-hmm. stop funding the police and the military in the Philippines. Um, you know, there's there's something that a lot of the organizations are working to uh, to push through the United States government right now called the Philippine Human Rights Act, which would suspend military and police funding from the United States to the Philippines, as long as these human rights abuses are ongoing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we're doing a lot of work right now to just kind of raise awareness of this um, and to find a legislator who's willing to sponsor it and then Mm -hmm. introduce it.
0: Mm -hmm. It's a lot of, it's a lot of work, right? Yeah.
1: And so we need more people.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's like what you said, it's you That's what activism is like it's act. It's like doing it's Mm -hmm. you're on the ground and you are constantly trying to figure out ways to actually make things move. Um, It's it's talking, but it's it's more the moving part and the doing.
1: Yeah, and I think, um, you know, a lot of times I, you know, I speak to Americans because that's where I live. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Americans, I think a lot of times get stuck in the idea of activism just being like protest marches. Mm -hmm. um and online petitions and there's like so Mm -hmm. much more than that and like so much more behind the scenes that's happening Mm -hmm. um you know i think it's important for people to realize like you know if you want to be part of it like it's not just those things right there's like a whole host of other things that need to get done and like whatever your gifts whatever your talents or skills are passions are like you can use those to help Mm -hmm. you know whatever movement you want to be part of right? Like we need artists. We need people who really love Excel spreadsheets. You know, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: We need people who are good at like financial stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, like every skill set is needed. We need coders, right? We need Mm -hmm. uh, all of these people. And Mm -hmm. it's not, activism is not just, I'm going to sign this online petition, donate some money and then show up to this, this
0: pleasant march. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And can you tell me like, what was your process in me? Like it sounded What was your process of making the book because with so many reviews um based on um i guess different opinions on how they feel about the philippines and who's in government there etc etc um what was your process in, in making the book um and did you have people um read it uh did you, have people, did you have family members read it before you released it or was it something that you kind of kept in and then you kind of released it on your own
1: yeah uh, so the book let me figure out how to start here <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I got the idea I think like 2017 or something mm-hmm. um, so this was like a year into the drug war because mm-hmm. um, President Duterte was elected in 2016 and then the drug war started you know right away i think on the day he was inaugurated like almost 40 people were killed Um and so you know it was something that i was just reading the headlines and reading the headlines and kind of just kept thinking about um and then you know i, I shared with you earlier the question of like what's my right as you filipino-american to talk about what's happened in the philippines and so i wrote this story to explore that question right? so i have a character who is filipino-american um and then the question of like imagining You know, if a Filipino American kid, you know, growing up right now who's like hearing about this stuff and reading about it, like how would they process it? Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the death of his cousin is kind of like the inciting incident that forces him to have a really personal connection to this. Right. Mm -hmm. He has to actually confront the question rather than it just being an abstract headline. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was kind of the starting point of it. And then I wrote the first draft in about maybe like three or four months, which was pretty quick for me. Um, I went to the Philippines. Um, actually like, yeah, I went to, to the Philippines when I was working on the first draft um, because my Lolo, my grandfather died. Um, and so I went to his funeral there. And so, and so a lot of like the the grief and the sorrow that's in the book is like coming from the grief and the sorrow of, you know, when I went back on that trip. Mm-hmm. Um, And then after that, it was probably a year and a half, two years of revising, editing. Um, I went back to the Philippines again, kind of when I was doing my last major round of revisions, just to do some fact-checking and just to make sure things were getting uh, accurate. And while I was there, I talked to a few different Filipinos. Um, I talked to uh, somebody who was an activist during the Marcos era uh, to get his perspective. I talked to a pretty well-known journalist while I was there kind of get her perspective mm-hmm. um, and so I was, yeah so i was talking to a lot of different people and then once what I was had, the feel
0: what was the, the feel when you were sharing with them like the work in itself yeah the
1: the the feel in the philippines is like you're brave <laughs> you're brave to write this like are you ready <laughs> are you ready for the consequences of it
0: mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. something
1: like this um which is fun it's, it's not funny but it's Interesting because like people outside the Philippines don't really get that piece of it mm-hmm. um, That it is like an actual, you know, dangerous thing to speak out in this way even through mm-hmm. art um, And so it's something that like, you know, with with the anti-terror bill now become law um, Like I, I don't know when I'm gonna go back to the Philippines now because um,
0: of the, Yeah, mm-hmm. because
1: my, not only because of the book but also my very open uh, activist work mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so after I had something that was like pretty well shaped and like, you know, I did want to make sure that I was getting as much accurate as possible because uh, you know I, I wanted to make sure that I was pro- portraying things accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one thing to, to note too, I think, is this was definitely, this is like a story of a Filipino-American trying to process the drug war, right? Mm-hmm. And so first and foremost, it's a character-based story. It's a Filipino-American-based perspective. Right. And I had to be aware of that when I was writing it, when I was revising it, because I think that's an important distinction. It's not the story of a Filipino mm-hmm. person dealing with the drug voice. war, it's different right? Voice. It's different mm-hmm. voice, different perspective. And it's not, you know, it's about, it's more about like the human impact of the drug mm-hmm. war than it is about
0: mm-hmm.
1: the drug war itself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So then I did have several people read it, several uh, Filipinos and Filipino Americans kind of read it as sensitivity readers or like basically, You know, for those who aren't aware of sensitivity readers, basically like somebody who has that lived experience can kind of check and make sure you're portraying things as accurately as possible, right? Just like in the same way, if you have a lot of science in your book, you might have a scientist check. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they gave me some really good feedback. Uh some of it kind of, you know, this process when you do that kind of thing, like it always reveals your own biases as well. Of course. Of course. You <laughs> so figure out like, you
0: find out things that you didn't know, right? Yeah. yeah.
1: so it was very it was a revealing process for me too, and like a humbling process. Mm-hmm. Um and mm-hmm. yeah, so I had several people because uh, you know, because no one person's perspective is complete, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's always helpful for me when I do something like this and kind of have a sensitivity read- is that I have multiple sensitivity readers because you're going to get different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't like depend on one person to be the of course. authority on, <laughs>
0: of course, on like, of one, one thing. Shirt. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah,
1: and in terms of family, I did have my dad read it um, early really? on. And kind of gave me some feedback on like the yeah the Philippine kind of aspects of the
0: story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And are they avid? Would you call them avid readers? Or are they always interested in kind of what you are? pursuing in regards to writing Uh, they're
1: definitely not avid readers (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) i literally never saw my parents read a book when Mm -hmm. i was growing up Mm -hmm. um the first book i actually like concretely remember them reading uh was when my first book came out (laughs) wow (laughs) they read it i think they read my books uh yeah so So how does
0: that happen with you then how does like the I guess, how does that progression happen with you where you decide you, for one, want to be a writer, um, Mm. want to be an educator, um, want to be an activist? Like, how does that happen?
1: Yeah, it's very much a process of, I think, understanding who I am as Mm -hmm. opposed to who my family wanted me to be. Um, So even though my parents weren't readers, they did make sure I had a lot of books in the house Mm -hmm. growing up, right? I do remember them like buying me a lot. You know, I remember like one of my favorite Christmas presents ever was like the the full box set of uh, Chronicles of Narnia. You know, when I was <laughs> in elementary
0: school, I think everyone had that.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, I remember them buying. They were very supportive of like buying me books and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved reading when I was younger. And then as I got older, it was kind of like I was letting letting kind of their view their vision of my future kind of push me and direct me more right Mm -hmm. and so it kind of became more about uh you know just getting good grades right doing well in sports like doing things that would get me college scholarships or whatever Mm -hmm. um and so i went into college actually as an aerospace engineering major in air force rotc um and (laughs) That so was i like,
0: keep going this is interesting so i'm like now i'm wondering how did that like how did that switch happen
1: <laughs> yeah so that, that was pretty much peak like me living kind of the life that i think they wanted me to live right okay um okay. but then like after doing it for a year i was just miserable um, mm-hmm. i did not enjoy engineering um i did well in rotc but like i was having increasing moral qualms about like being part of the military Mm-hmm. um and so then you know at the end of my first year of college i was just like i can't do this anymore like you know it's my life like i need to i need to to do the things that i want to do mm-hmm. and so then i ended up switching from engineering to majoring in english um you know not really knowing what i would do with that eventually mm-hmm. um and then dropped out of rotc and just kind of took on the student loans instead of you know since i would lost all the scholarships because of that
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah. And so and, you, then it was just kind of a process of like, yeah, just like in, in following what I was actually interested in, what I was genuinely interested in, as opposed mm-hmm. to what people were trying to get me to do.
0: And then you went to, um, you went to Harvard, is it Harvard?
1: I went to Boulder, University of Colorado Boulder
0: for undergraduate and then uh-huh. Harvard for graduate school. For graduate school. And how did you find graduate school? um going in as filipino white american like what did that look like for you at graduate school because during that time it sounded like you were um becoming or already like quite sure of who you are who you want to be a little bit more um how was that space like in graduate school for you uh
1: it was a it was better than my undergraduate experience mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, my undergraduate experience, like, you know, I don't know if, you know, those listeners who are not familiar with University of Colorado Boulder, like it is pretty glaringly white, you know, uh, predominantly white institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was an experience that was like not really much of a cultural awakening, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, even mm-hmm. though I was having that experience. Like, I felt like it was very, uh, very individual at that mm-hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was facilitated by these professors that I had at Boulder, who I'm very thankful that I had, Mm -hmm. uh, who were primarily professors of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, With, you know, by the time I got to graduate school, because I went, I I taught for four years before I went to graduate school. Um, Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I'd been teaching for a little while. I was kind of understanding myself a little bit better at that point. And so I think at that point, it was more about how do I create a better experience in the classroom for kids, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do I create, you know, more specifically, an education experience that's liberational, right? That is not just perpetuating systems of colonization. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in a neoliberal way, kind of like continuing a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know how much more to say about that, but there's I, I, get it. No, I just have a lot I, to say about education.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, like, of course, like as an educator and someone who's into literature, like, I, I, of course you do. I think that's all good. I do. Yeah, and,
1: and the thing that might surprise people is like, um, even though like Harvard itself is pretty, you know, predominantly white, um, there actually like, is a decent sense of diversity in terms of like international students and also like in the graduate schools i think a little Mm. bit more so Mm -hmm. um so by the time i got to that point i was also kind of like able to to find my people better in a way that Mm -hmm. i didn't know how to do when i was you know an undergraduate
0: yeah i could totally see that because it makes it so much being i guess having that those few years during your undergraduate allows you to be a little bit more comfortable with who you are and then like you said it's easier for you to find your people knowing who you're looking for um etc so i totally I, I totally agree with you um granny i have just a couple more questions for you i think the other question i'm wondering and i think i don't know if a lot of people know this like what do you do outside of your activism work and your 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 teaching that brings you joy um is like, what does that look like for you? What
1: brings me joy? That's a great question, yeah. especially
0: these days. <laughs> yeah, totally, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: because, you know, there's so much going on. And, like, I'm the kind of person that very much feels like I need to be in every fight. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is important to stop and, and you mm-hmm. know, experience joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, a, a variety of things, I would say. So probably, you know, I watch a lot of TV and watch a lot of movies, play video games um
0: what are you watching right now is there something
1: specifically you're watching right now uh my wife and i just finished watching what we do in the shadows oh i uh, heard that was good which is pretty good yeah yeah and uh and i'm making my way through avatar last airbender which i'd never Mm -hmm. seen before but they just Mm -hmm. you know they put on netflix a couple months ago yeah so so i do all of that i try to stay active by Mm -hmm. uh going on like regular hikes or backpacking Mm -hmm. um we're just like sitting outside and reading. Uh, I used to do like indoor rock climbing
0: back oh, cool. before the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well And I think that's good because it, I always wonder about authors and who are also educators and just also have families or have partners. And I just know that time is just really valuable. Um, and <laughs> every moment you have is you use it to experience something that like you're either you like you're really into there's not a lot of time in the day to like waste Mm -hmm. um so i'm not surprised that you i know you're super busy but i'm not surprised that you also have like so many other things that kind of keep you energized so to speak
1: yeah and i feel like like whenever i get in a conversation with somebody about tv they're like how do you
0: (laughs) watch so much tv
1: (laughs) (laughs) Like you teach a lot and you're like, right. Like, how do you also watch all
0: of this TV? Mm-hmm. I was like, uh, I don't know. And, it, and is that because are you, uh, would you consider yourself like a, uh, a night person or an early morning person? No, I'm very much a morning person. Morning I person. Mean,
1: during the school year, my routine is I wake up at about 4.30, I walk my dogs. I write from about 5 to 6.30 and then mm-hmm. I go teach. Mm-hmm. Uh and then you know after i'm done teaching kind of in the evening that's kind of my time to like relax read you know cook, hang out with my wife Uh, and so that's unless i have like a deadline to hit i generally Mm -hmm. am not writing in the evening because just by the time i get to the evening i'm like you know my head's filled with like the news of the day or whatever my experiences
0: were of the day i'm Mm -hmm. just like tired and so i go to bed pretty early during the school year <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm almost identical in regards to the time that i wake up i wake up in the philippines around four thirty. i usually go in and run or try to work out um, get my lessons ready for the day or whatever it is in the classroom and then when i get home i i want to be able to get home and relax with my wife Mm-hmm. wind down and then i usually say I, I like i stay up late but i don't like i'm such a like if i get once i get in bed i'm like knocked out
1: <laughs> And my wife hates me because i can fall asleep like pretty instantly most Dude, of the me, time. Too. <laughs> me too
0: <laughs> she's just like awake and just oh, like yeah. how are you how are you asleep it's so funny my my know. wife is the exact same way she she has difficulty getting to sleep and like i can i could lay and sit anywhere <laughs> and i will just <laughs>
1: Yeah, she's like she's like, How do you do it? I'm like, I wake up like three hours earlier than you. <laughs> like that's how I do it.
0: <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. I just find that I like the mornings because I feel like the rest of the world is sleeping and you for the most part, I think, especially if you don't have kids, you are allowed to just really zone in. Social media is a little bit down, depending on where you are in the world, I guess, and how much you're clicking, but you can really just like focus on something or turn things off and then focus on a task and get it finished or get it done. Um, just cause it's quiet. And there's not a lot of like buzz in your ear during that time.
1: Yeah. It's much more for me, peaceful. Like I know yeah. sometimes
0: people feel that about like late night, mm-hmm. uh, but for me, it's just, yeah, early morning. I 100% agree with you. Randy, where can people find you online? Where can people find you?
1: Yeah. So uh, I have a website, randyrebuy.com. Uh, you know, I'm on Twitter. Um on Instagram, at Randy Rebuy. Those are probably the two that I'm most active on. Also on Facebook, uh, a little bit less so. Mostly just post like articles, I think, in Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Twitter and Instagram are the best places to find me.
0: Awesome. I'm just and, at Randy Rebuy. And I hate asking authors this question, but I think it's just appropriate just to see because you never know. Um, is there anything in the works? Is there anything... Um, That you're working on, that you're looking forward to um, in the next few years in regards to writing and publishing? Uh,
1: Always got something working on. Um, Mm -hmm. Can't say too many details now. (laughs) I mean, like nothing's under contract at the moment. Um, And so, which is kind of, kind of frightening because you're like
0: <laughs> yeah
1: you're like oh is a, am i gonna get a book published ever again mm-hmm. uh, but it's also kind of freeing because kind of you know there's no pressure it's kind of like i yeah. can do what i want mm-hmm. um so i'm working on a couple different projects right now um you know i, I will say that they are they're both young adults but they're different genres um uh, mm-hmm. so, yeah so different genres than what i typically write and so it
0: would be and all i'll say for anybody like you don't may not be on contract now but whatever you're writing i'm i will say that i'm sure that it will be out there in the world and there won't be anyone that won't take it or won't look at it so (laughs)
1: let's hope so let's hope hope the editors out there are
0: thinking the same thing (laughs) i'm I'm sure they will (laughs) uh randy thank you for just hanging out with me today um Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. No, this is fun. It felt super natural.